welcome back to the Renaissance episode 27. We're still talking about Bukakio, uh, and we're going to be uh, talking finally, event, finally, finally, now, <laughs> fucking, we're going to be talking about it's hour three. the Decameron. Right. Yeah. Yes. Story about you, three. for you, of you. Predicting, Predicting me your, doing this show. Yeah, exactly. Mm. De- just call me Decameron Riley. <laughs> If, if I could start off with a high note, um, we've talked about the Black Deaths. <laughs> we've talked about the Black Death several times. However, in 1348, when it comes back, it comes back uh, with a vengeance. I think it's the, uh, the city of Florence, if, if I'm using the stats correctly. Not one half, but three-fourths of the city's population is wiped out. And and Boccaccio is going to use this as part of his setting for the Decameron. So, his his uh, stepmother died somewhere around 1347. His father, who had been moved up, who is now Minister of Supply in Florence, dies in 1349. Boccaccio is the head of his family, looking out for his younger brother. But again, um, all this devastation, all this death. It's time for him to write his next thing. And how could not? How could something li- like the Black Plague not permeate his writing? Because uh, uh, it, it's just it's pretty much taken over everybody's lives. But again, this guy is going to find the light, the the silver lining in the cloud that is the plague. Yeah, like we make jokes about rape. Uh, he used the plague as uh, a stepping, yeah. stepping off point. Yeah. <laughs> now, the the title, the Decameron, mm-hmm. um, comes from the combination of two Greek words, Deca, ten, right. and Hemera, day. So it's the ten-day event. Gotcha. It's it's a, about a bunch of characters that sit together for ten days and tell stories. Mm-hmm. Now, as you say, the Black Death hit Florence in thirteen forty eight. Boccaccio wasn't actually there at the time; he was still in Naples, right. but um, probably heard about it from from friends that were there. He did end up back in Florence. Um, he had been to Florence before that, so he'd left Naples after Maria dumped his ass. He went back to Florence. Then he goes back because Joanna's uh, Queen Joanna, her whose husband Andrew died with a rope tied around his balls, um, he was back sort of in Naples under her auspices. Um, And she kind of inspired him to write the Decameron. um, And he was still trying to hit Maria. Wow. Tap, you know, get back into Maria's pussy. It's been, what, probably 10 years now since Maria dumped his ass in 1338. But um, he's like, fuck, if I just write one more great book, she's going to fuck me again. Right. That's, that's all I want. That's how pathetic and sad. Now, he's, he's having sex with other people as yeah, well, yeah. don't get me wrong. He's not he – has, he hasn't hung it up to dry. He's, he's, he's out there tapping us. He's famous. Yeah. Like, he is famous. People are reading his Philocolo, his Philostrato, other things that he's been writing – um, to try and get Maria to fuck him again, yeah. but um, he's getting pussy. Yeah, Don't get me wrong. On other women, just not right. Just not the one he wants. Oh wow! Yeah. Now, according to Machiavelli, Florence lost ninety six thousand people during the Black Death, but modern estimates say the population of Florence at the time before the Black Death was probably one hundred and ten or one hundred and twenty thousand inhabitants. Yeah, and it w- went down to fifty thousand. Jeez. Um, 
after the Black Death. So probably they probably lost sixty or seventy thousand people. So yeah, bit, you know, say two thirds. Let's and, say, and not to be cruel, but after a wave of that comes along, I imagine you can just walk up and down the street in the best neighborhood and go. I like that house. And there's a decent chance, more than 50%, that there's no one left in the house because if one person in the family got the plague, chances are everybody did if they if they went back home before they saw any physical characteristics of it. Because remember, there are two different types of plague. One, you would die within three days, and the other one, the bubonic, you would die within five days. So again, it normally wiped out families or groups of people that were huddled together. So you could probably just walk around and pick up what you wanted. Again, that's, that's gruesome, but... I I'm just trying to picture anything like today where 60% of a set population just suddenly gone. Do you think it was easy to get laid after that? You're like, well, listen, you know, yesterday I wasn't uh, good enough, but uh, now I'm the only one still standing. Uh, I got a knife. I may only have, I may only have a one inch dick, um, But. but I'm alive. I'm alive. Yeah. yeah. A pulse. And I don't yeah, yeah, yeah. have the plague. Yeah. No, I, yeah. I currently do not have the plague. <laughs> Am I good enough as for As far you as now? we know. Good I try. do not. Yeah. 40 to 50% of the population of Europe died during a four year period. Yeah. Jeez. It's estimated that somewhere between 75 and 200 million people throughout Eurasia died. Uh, The most widely accepted estimate for the Middle East, including Iraq, Iran and Syria, is that it was about a third of people died, about 40% of the population of Egypt, half of the population of Paris died, which was only about 100,000 people at the time. still. About 60% of the population of Hamburg died and about the same percentage of people in London. Now, of course, as we've talked about before, when plagues hit, going back into, you know, late Roman Republic, early Middle Ages, we talked about plagues hitting. People in the day uh, tended to assume there were religious reasons for it, and Mm -hmm. it was the same in the 14th century. And it sort of brought about renewed religious fervor, renewed fanaticism. We've upset God, right. um, and so he's punishing us, so we need to be more religious. And Boccaccio gets caught up in all of this as well, and he became quite religious towards the end of his life. Yeah. Um, started regretting, um, you know, fucking raping people at the point of a knife. He's like, maybe I shouldn't have done Is that. that. Maybe God brought, brought about this. <laughs> <laughs> if somebody had told me that that was thanks George <laughs> remember it's not wrong it's not a lie if you believe it uh, I actually saw that as a, t- a takeoff of the uh, Nike Colin Copernic ad oh t- yesterday it was George Costanza was saying it's not a lie if you believe it um, Nike just do it um, so uh one of the other things that happened with this this religious uh, fervor after the Black Death is the targeting of Jews, oh. foreigners, beggars, pilgrims, lepers, and gypsies or Romani, who all got the blame for the crisis. Um, now, 
obviously people we didn't have a germ theory of disease back then mm-hmm. the the Europeans turned to astrological explanations sure. um and and they they the one theory was that the Jews were poisoning the wells oh. of Europe which led to people dying oh, God. um in February 1349 in Strasbourg the Christians of Strasbourg murdered 2,000 Jews. Mm-hmm. In August 1349, Jewish communities in Mainz and Cologne were completely wiped out. Damn. By 1351, 60 major and 150 smaller Jewish communities were destroyed. Those are Nazi numbers. Um, being blamed for causing the plague either because they were deliberately poisoning the wells or just because they'd upset God uh, for the, because of their Jewishness. And, um, yeah, they, uh, they wiped out um, the Jews. The Christians were killing out the Jews. I, I was going to ask real quick before you said mm-hmm. that last part about um, are they killing the Jews because, one, they blame them, two, um, it, in case all of us die, we want to make sure there's no more Jews, but it probably wasn't anything as systematic as that. It's pretty much, I don't know what you're doing to piss off our God, so he's killing 50, 60% of our our city-states, but obviously we have to punish you, and and so we're going to. And of course, there's only one punishment when it comes to Jews, but but that kind of absolute not thinking, no science, just revenge, just evil, just prejudice, just hatred, I mean, that that is... Perfect conditions, perfect climate for the church. Well, it's the Middle Ages. And, you know, as we've said many times before, despite the flowering of the early days of the Renaissance here, people are still very religious. Um, even even the fathers of the Renaissance, Boccaccio becomes very religious, as yeah. many of them continue to be. So, um, yeah, they're killing the Jews. And it's not just the Jews, as I said before. Foreigners, beggars, pilgrims, lepers, and the Romani um, are all cop a share of the blame here. Um, and, you know, part of it is they think, well, if, if we go and we murder these people, then God will love us more um, mm. and will stop killing us with the Black Plague. So that's how... Fucked up Christianity was in the 14th century still. A lot of them are thinking, you know what? You know, God loves us if we murder bad people. Uh, I was going to say, because where's the And that goes back as we've... Why don't they banish these people? No, they actually have to remove them from the planet. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Well, no, it's okay. But, you know, we've talked about St. Augustine. In our oh. earlier episodes, and this is one of the reasons why we did. Like he was like, "Well, it's okay to be to to have acts of violence towards bad people because you're actually helping them right. by killing them because you're stopping them from upsetting God more. Uh, so that's a good thing, right? This is the foundation Jeez. of uh, Christian doctrine." <laughs> Which is, you know, when I, when I get into conversations with people about Hitler and I explain the Nazis were Christians, which is quite often not very well understood. Um, and people go, and, and when, or when we talk about the Crusades or the Inquisition and people go, well, they weren't good Christians because they were committing acts of violence, have to explain, no, 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 that was part and parcel of being a good Christian. It, it was very well justified. 
by the the preeminent theologians of Christianity that violence was not only acceptable, it was necessary and holy, holy mm-hmm. violence. Going right back to Constantine and, you know, the, the, the battles between the Trinitarians and the Arians and the Donatists and all this kind of stuff. It's one of the reasons why I, we went to all the trouble to explain all of this in the early episodes of this series is so you understand that violence and Christianity go together like cheesecake and, and whipped cream, man. I don't know. Cheesecake and coffee. A fucking, uh, what do you Americans do with your cheesecake? Uh, a piece of rope and a ball sack. Like, like love and rape. They go in Picaccio's mind. And rape. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. True love and love and a knife, a dagger. Uh, <laughs> So um, uh, during this period, though, many Jews did get out of uh, mm-hmm. certain places of Europe um, and they, they ended up in Poland where they received uh. a warm welcome from King Casimir the Great. Right. So it's why you end up with a lot of Polish Jews is they got out of places like Italy and, and they went to Poland. Jeez. I, so the yeah. stories of the Decamerons, so yeah. Well, sorry, what? No, I, I just wanted to set it up before we get into the actual story. So he starts writing this around 1349, going to be kind of done in 1553. Um, uh, but some of the story. No, 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 no. 1353, not 1553 for a oh, start. It didn't take him 200 years to write. No, sorry. <laughs> sorry. And secondly. But he tweaks it, yeah. I, I, I. I have read that he may have started writing these stories before the plague. Ah. He may have started writing them as early as 1344, um, but after the Black Death happened, he kind of had a, a, a frame for right, the novel the and he gotcha. threw them all into this. Yeah, set up. Yeah. Sorry, keep going. Gotcha. Now, and, the, and the other part was he didn't wait until they were all finished before he released them. Some of them were released earlier, um, uh, which is why at the end of it, he's going to talk about maybe he's going to be criticized because he's already received some reviews from some of these stories. And even though there's a hundred stories, they weren't meant to be read in groupings in large groups. Maybe you'll know, read them one at a time. It would give you and your spouse or your family something to talk about in, uh, during dinner or after dinner in the evening or whatever. It was to stimulate conversation. But um, I, I, I just found the whole thing interesting because he's a writer, because he's got that kind of imagination. This horrible event, the Black Plague, 1348, wipes out 60% of Florence. And he's like, that's it. I, now I, I have got all these stories, and now I thought up a framework so uh, in which to put them in. So again, in some ways that's impressive. In some ways that's – I don't know if it's disturbing or whatever, but he, it does give him the framework to start putting these um, all these stories together. And you're right. This is going to be the greatest thing that he does. Once he finishes this, when it comes to Italian literature, uh, prose, the vernacular, no one is going to be able to equal – the quality of his writing up until today. I think, I mean, it was kind of brilliant from, a, from you know, the story oh, yeah. is he was writing these stories but str- struggling to figure out a way of marketing them until he hired Barry and Stan and they said, look, well, the thing right. everyone's talking about is the Black Death. Uh, if you say this is about the Black Death, everyone's going to read it because... You know yeah. the people that have survived the Black Death. You know are fascinated by it. So it was a, it was a brilliant.
brilliant piece of of marketing advice. Um, and it came up on so the, the setup the for the novel. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. He owned he owned SEO for Black Death Stories, man. <laughs> totally owned it. Uh, now, the setup here is that it it takes place during the Black Death. It's set mm-hmm. in Florence. It's about seven young women and three young men who escape Florence during the plague, hold themselves up in the countryside for two weeks and then spend 10 days telling each other stories. 10 days, 10 stories a day. There's 10 of them. They each tell a story every day on a theme and it makes 100 tales in all. Each story ends with a song or a canzione and it's a compendium of stories based around these daily themes. And it was hugely popular immediately. As you say, he released it ep- like episodic, like a podcast. Mm-hmm. Right. And a new one came out every week. People going, oh, this is fucking great. Um, unlike our listeners, they went and left reviews on iTunes after each episode because they weren't a bunch of useless cunts. And it became hugely popular, unlike our show. Maybe. Right. Maybe because he didn't call his audience a bunch of useless cunts. Um, <laughs> I'm cunts. kidding. Yeah. yeah. I'm, ki- I'm kidding. We love you. We appreciate I, you. Thank you. I just have to ask real quick. When you read the part about the seven young ladies and the three men, I thought it was the beginnings of a penthouse letter. I was really getting excited to see what would happen next. Mm. But sadly, no, they're going to talk to each other. I was trying to, I was trying to figure out, well, that's like two women per guy. Which is, you know, one at <laughs> that sounds right to one me. at the top, one at the bottom. Right, but what's the what's the seventh woman doing? During is she filming it? That's filming, what I want yeah. to know. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, she's walking around. In she's she, well, they didn't have they didn't have cameras in those days, so she's oh, drawing. She's, she's drawing. like, yeah, hold still, hold still. <laughs> And she's yeah. doing stick figures. I'll fill it in later. She's doing stick figures. I did want to say before we Maybe jump one of those. Stories, uh, <laughs> go ahead. What, what, like she's doing a flip book. That's how you did porn in those days oh, was a hot. flip book. Oh, uh, it's turning me on. <laughs> it's a lot of work. Don't go. get me wrong, but it's totally worth it. No, but I just wanted, and, and before we jump into the stories, it's worth noting that these stories that Boccaccio is about to tell, they're not all original stories of his creations. Some of them are cl- uh, collected and obviously changed from classical sources, oriental writers, well-known medieval deeds, French bodily humor stories, and folklore tales from Italy itself. But he's going to weave it all together. Now, there's a hundred stories. I don't know which ones you have, Cam, but just to let you know, I've got the story of Criselda. I've got the story of Federigo and his falcon, and I've got the story of the three rings, and just just some some other ones that are mentioned, like his most hilarious, his most obscene, and stuff like that. But those are the three that I that I read over and and got some information on. Are you going to read them? Are you going to give us I, the I highlights could. of what happened? What I, are you going to do? I well, I can do whatever. Yeah, well, I've got, I just yeah, you got all one hundred. I've got. No, I do, but I've I, I've got a few that I wanted to talk about, and maybe we can go tit for tat when we get into that. Yeah. So yeah, it's a collection of stories, and um, it was used by authors who came after him for inspiration for hundreds of years. Now, the church and and the the stiffer elements of society didn't like it because it was 
had a very sort of progressive, liberal approach to lifestyles. It was targeted to younger generations. Mm. Um, there's a lot of a lot of sex and and humor in it. Makes fun of the church. Um, he was it was rock and roll, man. It was a rock yeah. and roll book for a rock and roll generation. And the upper classes and the, the stiff the the stiff necks didn't like it. You know, but they were like, oh, the kids and the marijuana and the Decameron that they're reading and the blah, blah, blah. Nixon, Nixon came out against it, said it was the number one threat to America at the time, oh tried to God. outlaw it. Yeah. There's the story um, of O and, and it's still the Decameron. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it's a great fucking read. I highly recommend reading the Decameron. I've been, I haven't finished it, but I've read a bunch of it and, and I'm really enjoying it. They're great stories and very contemporary. If you get a good translation, you know, it, it's just a bunch of really fascinating short stories that are talking about contemporary issues of 14th century Florence. Now, a bit like Cicero was considered the master of Latin. Boccaccio is considered the the master of Italian prose, uh, particularly for the time, but also for a long time. He's known as the father of Italian prose because, again, wow. as I pointed out in the previous episodes, no one had done this before. No one was writing books before Boccaccio in the Italian vernacular, in the Florentine dialect of Italian, actually, mm-hmm. uh, he's writing. And it was new and exciting and magical that people could read stuff in the language that they spoke. Wow. Imagine if no one had ever written a book in your own language before, and now all of a sudden you've never seen the words that you speak written down before. Uh-huh. And it's suddenly there. I guess, yeah, like people are writing in your... I mean, they had, they'd learnt it. I mean, that's what you learnt when you went to school. That's, again, merchants were learning about this from a contractual perspective, but right. no one had written stories in your language before. He's writing this down. People are like, this is fucking amazing. <laughs> Who, why did we never think of this before? <laughs> writing shit down. This, right. is, a, this is incredible. It, and, was like, it was like the fucking Beatles, man. He'd invented <laughs> rock and roll. Uh, maybe he's Elvis. And people are like, what? How has this never been done before? This is the greatest thing since sliced bread. And by the way, we haven't even invented sliced bread yet, but we know that when it's invented, it it will be the greatest thing. (laughs) When was sliced bread invented, Ray? I don't know. I have no idea. You looking that up? 1928. Wow. Yeah, 1928 sliced bread, yeah. The greatest... It was advertised as the greatest forward step in the baking industry since bread was wrapped. They were like, this is the great... When they invented sliced bread, they said, this is the greatest thing since wrapped bread. Uh, and, and then they said, it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. And no one has ever come up with anything better because we still say this is the greatest. In 100 years, no one has come up with anything better than sliced bread because that's still our reference point. Exactly. No one has topped that yet. Yeah. Uh, by the it, way, it, yeah. Uh, by, by the way, Otto Frederick Roweda of Davenport, Iowa, invented the first loaf at a time bread slicing machine. Wow! He built a prototype in 1912, but it was destroyed in a fire. So he built another one, and that sank into the swamp. <laughs> so he built a third one. It caught on fire, then fell over, then sank into the swamp. But the fourth one he built stood, kept standing. Wow. In 1928, 
And this lad will be your. All this will be yours. But father, I don't want a bread slicing machine. Shut up, lad. We won't. No, no singing. What do you want? I want to. All I want to I do want is. To yeah. It was called the. He sold it to the oh, uh, Chillicothe Baking Company of Chillicothe, Missouri. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. Um, doesn't matter. It's in Missouri. They're all literate. Right. They can't read. Ding, 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 ding. Burt Reynolds, etc. Their product was the clean made sliced bread product, and it was a huge hit. Oh. Do you know Ooh. how many billions of dollars they made out. off that thing? Jeez. It's oh. like the guy who invented oh. Coke and then um, sold his sold off his rights to that to the company. I mean, just but yeah, that's that's the way it goes. What do you want to bet that Otto Frederick Rohead had died poor? Yeah, poor, broken, and addicted to cocaine. No, his I don't know, degree but I'm sure he did. was in optometry. Yeah. Oh, he did a degree in optometry and then became a jeweler. Then invented the bread slicing machine. Um, and I don't know if he died poor. It doesn't say. Yeah. Okay. I I just realised that. Oh, I probably don't think- not. He became vice. Yeah. He became right. vice president. He sold the patent rights. Then became vice president and sales manager of the Rowetta Bakery Machine Division. Um, died in 1960. There oh, you go. Good Fucking for him. legend. Anyway, nice. back to the Renaissance. He was the Renaissance of it- bread. Yes, I, I think it, it just dawned on me that one, even though um, um, Boccaccio is doing something new, like you said, I mean, his stories were, uh, they had psychological elements to it. They were edgy, the word that we would use today. They were emo. I mean, so not only were they stories, but they were stories that pulled at your heartstrings. There was tragedy, there was loss, there was uh, unrequited love. And so not only are these stories, but they're very effective emotional stories. And he's going to do the same thing here. And uh, he also gets credit for, uh, like you were saying earlier, about his dialogue. The, the, the writers that came before him would have set formulaic models that they would use for plot, character, and dialogue. He's breaking all the rules. He, he's shattering it all. He's setting up new standards that other people after him are going to copy, but yes, this Decameron, the, the Decameron just really, like you said, launches him into a whole new level that no other Italian writer is going to be able to touch for for hundreds of years. We need to rename the show. I just realized Decam- the Decameron and Ray Naissance. <laughs> Sold. That sounds like Stanaberry's best That's idea. Inception level. Up our own assholes. Yeah. Nice. Um, yeah, no, you're right. And and also the characters are from the lower classes. Mm-hmm. Now, no one was paying attention to the lives of the lower classes. No one gave a fuck. That's the why poor. they were the lower classes. But he's writing right. he's writing about the lives of the lower classes and about love and murder and intrigue and venality and ambition. And that's humanism. He's writing about the human experience which is the core of humanism, paying attention to human lives and not what happens to you when you die. So this is why, uh, you know, Boccaccio deserves the statue that he has at the front of the Uffizi Gallery in Florence that we we saw when we were there a couple of months ago. Um, So the way the book breaks down is each of the ten characters is charged as the king or queen of the company for one day each, The king or the Mm -hmm. queen then gets to choose the theme of the stories for that day. Everyone has to tell a story. 
And wow. they're all over the place. It's like a thousand and one Arabian Nights. The first story is about an evil cunt who's a murderer, thief, womanizer who goes to a strange land to recover some debts. Immediately when he gets there, he gets terminally ill and then tricks a, a friar into giving him absolution by pretending that he's a saintly Christian. Then he dies, he's buried in the grounds of the priest's church where he's considered a saint and people believe he has magical powers because there's a dead saint. If they touch him, you know, all their things will get cured. So that's the first story. And it's, it's basically a story about how religious people are easily fooled. That's how right. he kicks it off. Religious people are dumb. Now, like, this is fucking, what is it, 1349, this story comes out, the 4849, the first chapter, and he starts it off by going, religious people are a bunch of fucking idiots. Like, that is pretty ballsy for any era, (laughs) let alone 1349 in Florence. Now, he can get with Naples, really. Now, he can get away with it in part because neither Naples or Florence are really under the control of the papacy at this stage. They've broken away. But still, ballsy as all shit, man. You can imagine people reading that. It's like Lou Reed and the Velvet Underground in in 1966 coming up with a song called Heroin, talking about (laughs) shooting heroin. People are like, oh, my God, you can't can't put that into a rock song. That's like, this is is fucking ballsy, groundbreaking shit. Edgy, yes. Yeah. And I j- just real quick, I mean, because we'll see this in the stories, but um, Boccaccio makes fun of uh, purity, the confessional, relics, priests, monks, friars, nuns, and even the canonization of saints. He thinks most monks are hypocrites and laughs at the simpletons, the people who give them alms. And we'll go into his kind of defending himself later near the end of it. But he tears into the church, but within the relative safe confines of these stories. All right. So do you want to take a story each or do you want to, do you want to tell us about some of the stories? You do one, I'll do one. You do one, I'll do one. Okay. Let me, let me just do a paraphrase of Griselda. Now, warning to everybody, this is a pretty fucked up story. So there's this, this, this young lady, she's a wife and a mother, her name is Griselda, and she's married to Galtieri, who's the Marquis of Saluzzo. He decides that he needs to test his wife to see how loving and honorable she is. So he comes up with a doozy of a test. First, he tells her that he has, to, he has declared that their two children, a son and a daughter, must be put to death. Griselda gives both of them up without a protest. Then he decides, but, but of course, he doesn't actually kill the children. Instead, he sends them away to Bologna to be raised. He does some other tests, and then he says to his wife he, that I am publicly renouncing you and I have been claimed, and I have been granted papal dispensation by the Pope, obviously, to divorce you and to marry a better woman. Griselda leaves, and she goes to live with her father. Some years later, years, not months, not weeks, but years, he calls her back and he says, I am going to marry someone else, and I want you to come back and be our servant. So she comes back and he says, I want you to get ready. I want you to get the wedding ready. So she starts making preparations and he introduces her to a 12 year old girl that he claims is going to be his bride, who was much better person than she is. And then after Griselda wishes them well, it's only then that 
Galtieri reveals that no, she is actually their daughter. Here are our grown children, and she is restored back to her place as mother and wife. She has passed all of his tests. She is indeed an honorable and loving and subservient wife. Fucked up. Oh, man. And if she yeah. had, and if she had bitched about any of that, you know what's going to happen. He's the Lord and Master. He's going to know that she's not honorable and, and subservient, and he probably would have divorced her or killed her or, or locked her away. But the point is, he put her through hell to make sure she was completely his. So um, there's a story about a guy who kills his wife's lover. Sure. Then gives her her lover's heart to eat. Yeah. When she finds out what he's done, he tells her, by the way, uh, you're eating your lover's heart. Five, she five, yeah. throws herself out of a window, um, doesn't have a rope tied around her genitals because <laughs> she's hard to she's smart. Do, do that. It's a bit like Trump grabbing a woman by the pussy, as Jim Jeffrey says. How do you do that exactly? Um, anyway, she throws herself out the window, dies, and is buried with her lover. So that's Aww, one of the stories. Right. And by the way, as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, this is, like, these are basically um, like uh, Edgar Allan Poe stories. Yeah, yeah. You know, th- these are like, they're like fucked up horror stories, some of them. Uh Yeah. Anyway, that was one. You got another one you wanted to say? Talk sure. About? I got uh, Federico and his falcon. There was this man named Federico who was not rich but not poor. He was a he was a, a hunter. He could he could make ends meet, and he had this falcon that uh, they were kindred spirits. And um, but one day Federico falls in love with Mona Giovanna. Now, because this is Italy, she is not only the most beautiful and the most charming woman woman in Florence. But she's married. Still, it doesn't matter. This is fucking Italy. So he starts spending all the money he has on her, a lot like um, Boccaccio, to try to win her over. But his, eventually his money runs out and he doesn't impress her. So he has to go back to the country because he can't afford to live in the city anymore. But then her husband dies. And uh, Mona Giovanna's husband dies. and she, So she has to go to the country with her son for the mourning period. And the two, the the mother and the son, actually live near Federico. In fact, the son actually comes over to his house a lot, and he plays with the falcon. So everything's relatively okay. Unfortunately, the ball, the boy falls ill, and he asks his mother, "Can you get Federico to give me his falcon? Because if I he was my falcon, I think that would make me so happy I would live." So the mother is troubled by the thought of asking Federico for his only source of income, the falcon and his best friend. But she decides that she's going to do it for the sake of her son. So Federico welcomes her into his house, but then he gets very anxious because he doesn't have anything to feed her because he is pretty poor. So to make a good impression, he orders that his falcon be killed and roasted for dinner. So they eat, and after dinner, Mona Giovanna begs Federico to give her the falcon so it will make her son lift his spirits and make him feel better. Federico, because he's an Italian man, suddenly starts crying uncontrollably, not because his falcon is dead, but because he cannot comply with her request because they just ate the damn bird. 
Sadly, the son dies anyway because he didn't get the motherfucking falcon. And Mona Giovanna, because she is semi-noble, is required to remarry. She declares that she will marry no one but Frederico. And because of her wealth, and because, I guess, of his true love for her, they live happily ever after, except her husband's son are dead, and his falcon is dead. Eaten inside of his But he can buy more falcons. But it won't... He can buy more falcons, because he's rich. Okay. But that's the story of Federico and his falcon. Uh, I've got a story about a guy who... Gives in to his mother, who forces him to go to Paris to study. Right. When he returns, he finds out that his girlfriend has married someone else. Fuck. So uh, he enters her house secretly at night, lays himself down by her side, sure. kills himself. Oh. Um, he's taken to the church. His girlfriend lays down by him and dies, kills herself as well. So a bit Romeo and Juliet right. you can see there, the basics of sort of these tragic love stories. There's a story about uh, three young men who love three sisters and they all run away together to Crete, but the eldest of the sisters slays her lover out of oh. jealousy. Right. The second saves the life of the first by fucking the Duke of Crete, gets her off a murder rap. Right. Her lover finds out she fucked the Duke of Crete and then kills her and runs away with the elder sister. The third sister and her lover are charged with the murder of the second sister. They get arrested, they confess, but then they escape the death penalty by bribing the guards... They run away f- to roads where they die poor and destitute. Wow. You got another Is, one? Well, I've got one that's kind of long. Did you did you run across the one about the legend of the three rings? Are these Green Lantern rings? No. No. <laughs> no. Okay, I'll try to make it short. So anyways, there's this man who is... Um, He's not very nice, and he needs some money. So what he's going to do is he's going to invite this Jew over to his house for dinner, and he's going to get him in a trap. He's going to ask him, which of the three religions are the best? The Jewish? Oh, the Christian? yeah, I know this one. Yep. Okay. I mean, if you want to tell it, go ahead and tell it. Cause no, no, no. You, you keep going. Tell okay. it. It's good. All right. So, yep. so, so which one's the best? The Jewish, the Christian, or the Mohammedan? And what he's hoping is that the, um, the Jew is going to be dumb enough to give him an answer, offend him, and because he's Jewish, he probably doesn't have any rights. He can grab him, arrest him, blackmail him, kill him, I don't know, take all his, or whatever. But this Jew, not unlike Jesus, decides to answer indirectly through a parable. And his story is thus. There was once a rich and great man who had among his very precious jewels a good and costly ring. Wishing to leave it in perpetuity for his descendants, he declares that whichever his sons should at his death be found in possession thereof, by his bequest to him, should be recognized as his heir and will be honored and loved by everyone else in the family. So if you're wearing this ring when I die, you are the top dog, you get everything and everybody has to respect that and not kill you. So it works. He passes it on. His son passes it on. His grandson passes it on. And several generations go by up until we get to the point where there's another man who has equally 
three good sons, and he doesn't know who to leave his possessions to. So instead, he has a craftsman make two other rings that are identical to the first. So near the time of his death, he gives each son a ring, but they don't know that. So the question of is, um, so the Jew says to the guy who's trying to trap him, the question which was the father's very error abode pending, and yet it pendeth. And so I say to you, my Lord, of the three laws given by God the Father to the three peoples, each people deemeth itself to have his inheritance, his true law, and his commandments, but of which the in very deed hath them, even as the rings, the question that you ask, yet pendeth. So as far as everybody's concerned, the Jews think they have the best, the Mohammedans think they have the best, the Christians have the best. As far as which one is the best, the question is still pending. And so he got out of the man's trap to try to trick him and punish him and take all his money. So this is brilliant, right? Like, and again, this is being written in the middle of the 14th century in a Christian country, and he's going, you know what, they're, they're probably all equally yeah. right. Correct. You should be burned on Islam, the cross for that. Yeah, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity. Like, ballsy is all <laughs> fuck to write a story like that in the middle of the 14th century. Um, so there's another one that I liked. There's a story about um, a friar, like a, like a monk, right. who starts banging a married woman. He, he Again, a bit like Boccaccio. He sees her when he's young, falls in love. She marries someone Doesn't else. Matter. He goes and becomes a friar. Then he manages to start banging her. Um, her they, they do this uh, for quite a while. Her husband arrives home early one day Uh-oh. and uh, she manages to get her clothes on. They hear his car pull up into the driveway. She throws her clothes on. She answers the door. Quick thinking. The monk hasn't been able to get out, but he's got his clothes. And she goes "Oh," to the husband. She goes, thank God you're here. Um, our young son was dying. From worms around his heart, sure. you know how it is. The worms get in, they get around your heart, um, they squeeze it, you die. <laughs> Luckily, Friar Tuck here just happened to be passing by, Fire heard fire. me cr- cry out for help. He came in, said a prayer over him, uh, the kid that is, and he miraculously came back, came back to life. The husband's so happy, he has a statue erected in the town square wow. in honor of the friar. Fuck me. Yeah. Fuck her. Again. Yeah. <laughs> great story. There's a story of the, um, and this is the one I'll finish on. Um, there's a Christian in Paris who's trying to convert his Jewish friend. Right. And his Jewish friend ends up saying, listen, I'll tell you what. I'll travel to Rome, check out the Pope, the Cardinals, the Vatican, the whole deal, see what it's like. And his Christian friend thinks, oh, fuck, well, that's done. Like, he goes to Rome, he's going to see these guys are a bunch of cunts. He's never going to convert, right? Sure enough, and I'm going to read this uh, directly from Boccaccio. The Jew mounted to horse, and as quickliest he might, betook himself to the court of Rome. He was honorably entertained of his brethren. And there abiding, without telling any the reason of his coming, he began diligently to inquire into the manners and fashions of the Pope and Cardinals and other prelates and of all the members of his court. And what with that which he himself noted, being a mighty quick-witted man, and that which he gathered from others, he found all, from the highest to the lowest, most shamefully given to the sin of lust, 
and that not only in the way of nature, but after the Sodomitical fashion, without any restraint of remorse or shamefastness, insomuch that the interest of courtesans and catamites was of no small avail there in obtaining any considerable thing. Moreover, he manifestly perceived them to be universally gluttons, wine-bibbers, drunkards and slaves to their bellies, brute-beast fashion, more than to aught else after lust. And looking farther, he saw them all covetous and greedy after money, insomuch that human, nay, Christian blood, no less than things sacred whatsoever they might be, whether pertaining to the sacrifices of the altar or to the benefices of the church, they sold and bought indifferently for a price, making a greater traffic and having more brokers thereof than folk at Paris of silks and stuffs or whatnot else." Manifest simony, they had christened procuration, and gluttony, sustenation. And if God apprehended not, let be the meaning of words, but the intention of depraved minds, and would suffer himself after the fashion of men to be duped by the names of things. All this together with much else which must be left unsaid was supremely displeasing to the Jew, who was a sober and modest man, and him seeming he had seen enough, he determined to return to Paris and did so. So he gets back to Paris and his friend says, what did you think? And he said, they were fucking boys, they were raping, they were after money, they were just, it was disgusting. And the Christian said to him, well, I guess that's it then. You're not going to convert. And he goes, no, 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 no. On the contrary, I'm converting. And his Christian friend, like, what? He goes, well, if the leaders of Christianity are that fucking depraved and the religion is still thriving, it must be true. If it wasn't, it would have been wiped out a long time ago. It must be true. (laughs) So how the fuck did Boccaccio not end up burned at the cross, man, writing that story? Like he's going after the leaders of Christianity and then with a twist at the end. Yeah. It's fucking amazing to me that he survived this. Jesus. I've got um, two very, very short stories. There's there's one more about a friar named Sipola who does, who needs to raise a good collection. So what he does is he promises his audience to display a very holy relic. In fact, it's one of the angel Gabriel's feathers, which remained in the Virgin Mary's chamber after the Annunciation. He goes, yes, I actually have one of the angel Gabriel's feathers. So there's that. His, but it, but his my, chamber... Yeah. His, is chamber a euphemism for her pussy? Did the gay, the angel leave <laughs> behind a, a feather? Hair. He has a pu- I don't know, but but my favorite one is the virile youth Maseto, who because he's young, because he's virile, is able to complete his mission, which is to satisfy an entire nunnery in one night. <laughs> but through God's will, he does. And then the, and the last one I'll say is that in another, in another tale, Friar re. Rilaldo cuckolds a husband, whereupon the narrator asks, "What what monks are there that do not thus?" So again, he, he's just he's just going to town on the church. And at the end, he writes, "He goes, look, I know I'm going to be criticized, but only because I have in sundry places written the truth about the friars." 
But at the same time, I congratulate myself on this long labor, thoroughly accomplished with the aid of the divine favor. So thank you, God, for helping me write this really long book that trashes your church. So you get an idea. So there's a hundred stories like that in the Decameron. Yeah. Um, just uh, bawdy, trickery. There's love stories. Yeah. There's stories of heroism, tragic love stories. It's all over the place. Um, and uh, wow. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he obviously, as you can imagine, got criticized yeah. um, at the time for the stories being crude and cynical. But his excuse was no, like, there's a moral. Um, um, affirmation all the way through this. You know, there's the stories that even the naughty stories, I'm saying, well, they're naughty people, right? Right. Um, I'm not celebrating their naughtiness. We're just talking about it. There there was an underlying tone of of goodness and morality and virtue through it all, Mm -hmm. even though a lot of the stories are depraved is all fucking hell. Right. Um, And it was massively popular and obviously went on to inspire writers for centuries. So big thumbs up to Boccaccio. Did you... Uh, Where are we at with time? uh, Ten minutes. Let's let's wrap this bitch up. Okay. Yeah, what? No, just one that Boccaccio, you have to remember, he is from swinging Naples, you know, the place that uh, King Robert the Wise, where they had a lot of parties, they had a lot of money, they spent a lot of money that they shouldn't have on joust and things like that. So as far as being bodied, that's second nature to this guy. So yeah, it's going to be incorporated into his writing. How could it not? Um, so look, he goes on, um, lives quite a long life, um, and, and keeps writing. He doesn't Mm -hmm. slow down after the Decameron. He gets more influenced by Petrarch and the classics there. Uh, after that, um, he starts to write a lot of works on, um, the ancient mythology, um, and great women of history. Mm-hmm. He does a lot of more serious stuff later in his life. And, um, you know, these encyclopedic works, which he wrote in Latin, not in the vernacular, right. also were hugely, uh, inspirational for Renaissance artists. Mm. Um, Good point. you know, before, uh, before this point, Artists, like painters, uh, uh, you know, we saw this a lot as we were going through Rome and, and Florence um, and Paris at the Louvre. They were painting religious works. Mm. Paintings were all about religious stories. And they continue to be, but but he wrote a major encyclopedia on Greek mythology, which artists then started to read and started to use that as inspiration for a lot of their paintings. So um, for the first time, you can read about this in Latin, Mm -hmm. the the Greek myths, right? So that that has a huge impact on uh, uh, artists during the Renaissance period. Um. As I said before, like uh, a lot of his earlier works weren't really appreciated until late in the 20th century, all the, the stuff about Maria di Aquino. Aquino. Mm-hmm. The 700th centenary of his birth in 2013 saw a, a huge range of publications that were sort of celebrating his influence. So it's, you know, even today he's still being better understood, better appreciated in scholarship. Uh, you know, the mainstream people have really forgotten about him a lot. He doesn't get uh, as much appreciation 
as he deserves, mm-hmm. but he certainly was hugely influential with all the people we're going to see come next over the course of the series. Later on in life, he starts getting involved in politics. Um, he's a municipal councillor. He's an ambassador on a number of occasions. Goes to the Pope. Yeah, uh, he's sent as an ambassador to the Pope. The guy who wrote the book saying the Pope was basically <laughs> buggering children. He goes to the Pope. He goes, Ah, oh, yeah, don't worry about that. Yeah, 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 you haven't read that, have you? No, good, good, good. Don't read it. Don't read it. You wouldn't like Skip it. it. It's like when people when people find out they go, oh, you do podcasts. They go, Yeah, they go. Oh, listen. I go, No, nah, don't, 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 don't listen to the podcast. No. Yeah. One of my clients listened to some of our podcasts, and they, I saw them the next week. And they went. Okay, right. Well, wow. Uh, like, edgy. yeah. Yeah, edgy. you don't want to. Yeah, and, and, edgy. And to, and to give Boccaccio, I think we said this on the Petrarch series, but Boccaccio did rescue the books of Tacitus, the Annals 11 through 16, and 1 through 5 of the histories. So again, as you were saying earlier, Petrarch encouraged him to read, to find, collect, to copy, or whatever. He does his part. He also, and then we mentioned a little bit, but he's going to help bring Greek back to uh, Europe or whatever. We can touch that or not. But the point is, this guy does his part. He and Petrarch have, as Petrarch has uh, said, shared a single heart when it came to the issues of humanism, when it came to looking for the uh, classic works and for and for basically improving everybody's lives um, and, and art and literature and things like that. So these guys were purposefully, they had a cause, they had a crusade. You know, I think as we mentioned in the... Petrarch episodes, by the 14th century, not many people in the West could read or understand or speak Greek. It was Mm -hmm. lost. So Boccaccio brings a Calabrian Greek scholar, Leontius Pilato, to Florence, puts him up in his house for a couple of years, gets him a job teaching Greek at the University of Florence. Wow. Now, apparently Calabria part of Italy, obviously, still had, for various reasons, a largely Greek Orthodox population. Hadn't been Latinized like the rest of right. Europe had. Yeah, so, so he brings Leon... Sorry, dude. I'm sorry. Just Southern Italy had a lot of Greek um, people and speaking and stuff like that. That's why Southern Italy still has that that information. But you're right. For the rest of Europe, it's pretty much gone. So he brings Pilato to Florence, gets him a job, and it's Pilato who then translates uh, Euripides, Aristotle, and does an almost word-for-word translation of Homer, both the Odyssey and the Iliad, translates them from Greek into Latin. So now Boccaccio and Petrarch can actually read Homer for the first time, even though they're reading it in Latin, not in Greek. So a huge influence, obviously, that uh, Pilato has, and that's the doing of Boccaccio, bringing him to Florence to make Greek accessible again. Mm-hmm. Pilatus, by the way, or Pilato Pilatus, was killed on a voyage to, uh, from Constantinople when lightning struck the ship's mast as he was standing against it. Damn. So uh, apparently the gods weren't so happy with him uh, translating Homer into Latin. Maybe he didn't do it well enough. Uh, Boccaccio, as you said, Boccaccio uh, discovered, rediscovered uh, Tacitus. So a lot of the works that we have of Tacitus now, which are incredibly important, Mm -hmm. uh, we've talked about him in previous episodes. He was sort of a governor, late first century, early second century CE. Um, uh, 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 It was because of Boccaccio. He also rediscovered 
Marshall, Apuleius, Varro, Seneca, Ovid, uh, and Livy. He translated Livy's History of Rome into Italian. Wow. Um, so in- incredibly important um, uh, uh, contributions mm-hmm. to the Renaissance. Outside of his own writing, yeah. the other work that he did, uh, you know, massively important. He wrote two massive classical encyclopedias. One was a topography of the ancient world. So he went through all of this ancient Greek and Latin literature and listed uh, all of the the lakes and the seas and the mountains and the valleys and mm-hmm. the springs and the, the forests that get mentioned in those, you know, wrote a, a Latin version of that so people had a better understanding. He also did this uh, massive compilation of the genealogies of the pagan gods, all of the mythology and the deities and who fucked who and who was a child of which god. Very confusing still yeah. today, but he took all of these old sources and sort of turned it into a reference encyclopedia for people who could read Latin massively. And in the process of that, he fucked up a bit too. Um, the demigorgon, the demigorgon that watchers of Stranger Things will recognise, um, was a was a the invention of a mistranslation wow. of one of these old texts that I don't think he caused it. I think someone else caused it from memory. They they mistranslated something, but he ran with it. And so people then ran with his mistranslation. The Demogorgon turns up in all these stories uh, during the Renaissance, not an actual Greek mythological <laughs> figure at all. It was a, a, a mistranslation. But anyway, oh uh, he, he did an amazing amount of job that, that scholars and writers and artists worked with for centuries. And, and, and just to let, and I think we're going to kind of do high level here, but he sometimes works for the Florentine government. Sometimes he doesn't. He is going to congratulate Pope Urban V in 1367 when the papacy is finally returned back to Rome from Avignon. So Boccaccio was sent from Florence to congratulate him. But he is getting older. He's getting fatter. He's dealing with more maladies than I know how to enumerate. So he's getting older. He's getting weaker. He's slowing down. Probably all the time he spent stooped over copying books, reading books, working, things like that. Yeah, and he becomes more religious, as I hinted at before. So, um, you know, I guess it it, it is important to keep in mind uh, that even the the leading lights of the Renaissance still straddle these two worlds, like the, the modern world and and the classical world. They're going back to ancient Greece and ancient Rome, but they're also in the Middle Ages. And some of them are quite religious at various stages of their life. Boccaccio was one of those. Well, again, it's important to understand that humanism didn't take over suddenly. People didn't wake up one day and go, fuck religion. We're now, um, yeah, very slow process. Takes centuries to gradually uh, uh, make its way into people's mindsets and to weaken the power of the church and increase interest in logic and reason and science and these sorts of things. Around 1360, Boccaccio seems to have left Florence, gone back to his hometown of Certaldo, outside of Florence. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, then the following year, he seems to have had a, some sort of a religious conversion. And there's a bizarre story attached to it. So at some point, uh, a Carthusian monk came to him and said that another monk who was had died on his deathbed 
uh, had given a message for Boccaccio. A Cartesian monk, by the way, there is a, it was an order of monks founded by St. Bruno in 1084. Mm-hmm. So this monk comes to him and he goes, this guy had a secret message for you, whisper, whisper, whisper. <laughs> um, and Boccaccio was like, oh, my oh, God, shit. it's a message from God. It's a warning from the Lord. Is it? And basically the message had something to do with something he'd done in his previous life. We don't know what it was. Um, But it basically said if you don't abandon your godless ways in life and literature, you're going to die and go to hell. It freaked him the fuck out. We don't know what the message was, but it's probably you have been a bad boy. You fucked some bitches, man. And he's like, how could you know? (laughs) Well, we've read your book, dipshit, but still. Yeah. 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 So I, now, um, yeah. did you read P- Petrarch's response to him? I, I have a high level of it. If you have something specific, please continue. You probably have what I have. Just read what you've got. J- basically, what P- Petrarch heard about that he was thinking about selling his books, becoming a, a monk. And Petrarch, and I thought this was pretty clever, he said, no, no, how about a middle course? You don't have to do an extreme one way or the other. So here's, you know, step one. Don't write any more sexy poems or stories. Quit pissing off the church. And two, study the Latin and Greek classics. So focus on doing some real good work. Stay away from the body stuff. You did that when you were younger. You're getting older now. And that way, the church won't be pissed at you. And you'll give up those ways. And hopefully, we'll meet in heaven one day. Well, yeah, I've got Petrarch's actual note to him. Oh, he okay. said, no monk is required No monk is required to tell thee of the shortness and precariousness of human life. Of the advice received, accept what is good, abandon worldly cares, conquer thy passions and reform thy soul and life of degraded habits. But do not give up the studies which are the true food of a healthy mind. Because Boccaccio was going to burn his library, completely abandon literature, uh, give up everything and, and basically become a monk. And as you say, Petrarch was like, dude, like, chill the fuck out. Like, just uh, <laughs> stop banging deflowering maidens. Right. Stop injecting heroin into your eyeballs and just, uh, <laughs> you know, settle down. So yeah. Boccaccio seems to have uh, taken this advice. Um, he did enter the church in 1362 in some form. Mm-hmm. But the, the works from the next part of his life are not religious, but they're you know more encyclopedic and, 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 and nonfiction and serious. Um, and uh, he seems to have been poor in this later part of his life. Apparently all the money he ever got, he spent buying ancient works, oh, collecting this massive library. Right. Yeah. Um, and he dies one year after Petrarch in 1375. So he's in his early 60s when he dies. After Petrarch's death, he urged Petrarch's son to posthumously publish Africa. Right. He said, like, you know, I, I bless the, the rains down Africa, greatest yeah. song ever. Yeah, I know. You got to uh, put that I'm not going to. We're running out of time. Yeah. I know. We're running out of time. Yeah. yeah. So, so, so he convinced him to put that out. Yeah. I was just going to say December 21st, 1375, in Geraldo is where Boccaccio dies, bloated, fat, myopic. Um, he was really struggling physically as he got older. And he wrote his own epitaph for his tombstone, which uh, is in Latin. The best translation I could get of it goes like this. 
Beneath this stone, dust and bones lie John. His mind rests in the sight of God. His toil was embellished by the merits of his mortal life. His father was Boccaccius, his homeland Chitaldo. They were his nourishing passion. No mention of raping Maria D'Aquino. No. That doesn't get to hit the highlights list at the tombstone. (laughs) By the way, uh, she died uh, seven years after him. So he wasn't around when she was beheaded. Right. It's probably for the best. He didn't get to see that. Yeah. Probably his, for the best. On his deathbed, he's probably like, I, I'm going to tap that one day. And then he died. <laughs> I don't even care if she doesn't have a head. Does I'm it, still going to hit it. Doesn't matter. <clears throat> matter. Uh. Well, I hope you enjoyed that, folks. That is the story of Boccaccio. Fucked up. Uh, but, but brilliant. A genius. Yeah. T- totally just get the, the Cameron... Yes, and uh, just read some of the stories. Yeah, it is. It's real. If you love this show, you'll love the Decameron because it's fucked up and twisted <laughs> like we are. Uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks with uh, more on the Renaissance. Not exactly sure what we'll talk about next time, but um, yeah, we'll get some. It'll be fun, whatever it is. Thanks, buddy. All right, thank you. Bye bye.